listening English, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Danny Duran, and this is the Infinite Jigsaw Podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery, and a genuine incentive to improve sense making. In this series of 10 30 minute episodes, I ask my friend Carbon Mike to explain the 10 precepts of foundationism. Mike is the founder of the Foundationist Society, a political movement of people who build things for a living, whose beliefs fall outside the boundaries of traditional left-right politics, a place for those who are conservative on some issues and liberal about others, a secular society but friendly to believers, forward-looking although respectful of tradition, with an open-eyed love for country whilst acknowledging the existence of injustice and the need for change, the society are not revolutionaries, and do not believe in burning down the house in order to fix what's wrong with it. Foundationists believe in free markets, but only as vital engines for wealth creation, and not as the blueprints for just and functional societies. And they also believe in borders, and the defence of borders, but with an understanding that the most important borders are in fact invisible, and can only be defended by truth, plainly spoken, a love of order, a hatred of injustice, and a courageous trust in one's fellow citizens. Foundationists believe in the individual, but only to the extent that the individual is willing to give up petty tribalism and adopt the responsibilities and civic virtues of citizenship. They believe in the state, but only as a vessel for the sacred fire that burns in the individual. And they have gratitude for the civilization handed down to us by our predecessors. It is the foundation on which we build the future. In the first of the 10 episodes exploring the 10 precepts of foundationism, I asked Mike about precept number one, which is see deeply. In the second episode, we discussed precept number two, which is listen closely. And in the third, precept number three, which is reason honestly. And last time out, we moved on to number four, which is speak clearly. And to initiate this last discussion, I asked Mike if the first three precepts, in fact, set the foundations to be able to speak clearly. And he told us that seeing, listening and reasoning are arts while speaking is a craft. And therefore, speech is something that once built is inactive in the world for good or bad. Next, I asked, what do you think could be faulty with the way that speaking clearly is approached currently? And Mike said that ideas are dangerous. And if ideas are dangerous, then speaking is also dangerous. And that this intrinsic power of speech is something to be truly mindful of. Then I asked, How is one to train themselves to speak clearly? And among other points of advice, we heard that a good start is to read the past masters of clarity, the likes of Orwell and Chesterton. My penultimate question was, what are the things to be mindful of that may interfere with speaking clearly? And Mike said that self-deception, which is particular to our species, drives a kind of pathological empathy. And albeit a well-intentioned self-deception, nevertheless, This serves to weaken our reasoning and our speech. And lastly, I asked, what are the potential results of not speaking clearly? And we heard that one of the most tangible results is that we destroy our ability to come to terms with ideas. For Mike's full explanations of how to see deeply, listen closely, reason honestly and speak clearly, please check out previous episodes on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, etc., or just search for the Infinite Jigsaw podcast in your browser. Well, today we are back together to discuss the fifth precept of the manifesto, which is act bravely. And I'll be asking a similar set of questions. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Now, 
We've spoken about the comparative arts of listening, seeing and reasoning, and also the craft of speaking, which relies on the foundation of these preceding arts to become true and potent. So moving on to acting bravely. Do the first four precepts make doing this more effective? Not necessarily. The first four precepts taken together mm-hmm. and this one are in relationship to each other, kind of like a feedback loop. Of course, what we're talking about is courage. You, you could argue act bravely should have been the first precept because uh, it's been said before that courage is the virtue that allows you to practice all the other virtues well, right? You, you can't, you know, you can't even love someone well without courage. But again, I think it's more of a feedback loop because, for example, we talk about seeing deeply and listening closely. Well, sometimes paying close attention to something reveals something that is actually to be feared. Sometimes it reveals an actual danger and then you need courage to face that danger. And sometimes what you have to do is get your courage up in the first place so that you can look at something deeply so that you can pay close attention to it. And then once you start paying close attention, you may find other things that are fearsome and then you need courage again to face those things. So you can see how they they reinforce each other. I don't know which one properly comes first in terms of one's own personal practice. And I don't think it matters that much as long as you remember that courage is an absolute necessity. Courage itself is not an absolute courage itself is something that requires something else it requires fear in the first place only fearful people only people who have been made afraid can really be courageous because courage being a classical virtue and also a christian virtue right something that it, it's the the ability to govern one's passions well courage is the ability to govern the passion of fear so if you feel fear you can then be courageous And since there are always things to be afraid of, um, there is always call for courage. Mm. Something you said there really stuck with me, and that is that you you can't even love someone well without courage. Um, And courage being an absolute necessity. And if you pay if you pay close attention to even your intimate relationships, then yes, they can be very dangerous because you have an open heart. Let me ask you then, in what ways can we detect that our actions are not brave? Let me tackle that question a different way. Mm -hmm. There are questions you can ask yourself that can inform you as to whether moral courage is at issue. Are you risking something? Are you demanding something of yourself? This thing that you're going to decide to do or not to do, will it cost you something? Are you facing death? Are you facing the death of something other than yourself, but which is nonetheless a part of you? You are urged or prompted to confront something and you turn away from it. Maybe it's an argument that challenges a long-held belief. So it's one thing if you disagree with that idea or that argument in good faith, and you simply turn away from it or you reject it. 
But if by confronting that argument or confronting that idea, you run the risk of a part of you dying, the part of you that believed that dying. If you're confronted with the specter of, you know, having to cut off that part of you and cast it away from you, then you may have some idea that courage is required. And that's a separate question from whether or not you actually accept the idea. You may confront the thing and reject it on its own terms, on its merits. That's fine. But to turn away from it because you are afraid of the death of your bad ideas, that is an act of cowardice. I really like the notion that courage is a game of degrees and facing danger is is sometimes a matter of choice and other times it's a necessity for survival you know and these degrees of demand are are sometimes external but a choice can be made to be courageous when your life doesn't seem to depend on it when actually it really might and the part of you as you say that knows that is the case will ultimately hold you to account for cowardice should you not choose to be courageous that's correct that's correct um Let me ask you, how is one to train themselves to act bravely? Well, training really is the right term here. I'm always telling people that courage is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. And so mental discipline is vital. Some kind of internal mental practice, prayer, it, it serves that same purpose. You're aligning yourself. You're warming up and kind of stretching that muscle and you're confronting things which are vast and therefore inherently fearsome. If you Mm. turn inward, the inside of the human mind is effectively infinite. And so to face what is in there, well, what is in there? You don't know what's in there. What is in your mind? You don't know. Your conscious mind thinks it knows, but it doesn't. So facing that can require courage, can be a good exercise for courage. Prayer, it's the same thing. You face God, you're, you're facing the infinite, you're facing an infinite mind. And that also requires a kind of courage. I think it's very often the case that people don't understand how courage is like a muscle and they don't understand how it's a matter of degrees and they don't understand how life gives them thousands of small opportunities to practice courage. And many times those opportunities are so small. Those The, the occasion is so small. The occasion is so brief, mm. right, that it's almost over and done before you know it. And you don't realize that you exercised your courage, but you did. You know, I hate the term mindfulness, but I would say try to be mindful of very small occasions when you might be afraid of something relatively harmless, right? I mean, many of us might be afraid of something as small as an awkward social moment. Mm. But if you find yourself in the position of having to risk an awkward social moment in order to, I don't know, reach out to someone who looks like they might need help, then that's an occasion to practice courage. And the stakes are small in that occasion, maybe, and that's okay. You typically start with small stakes and you build up. I think about how children play and how small and and animals play even when they're young. 
you know, especially, you know, young boys, young male animals, they'll wrestle and they'll tussle and, you know, fight each other and what have you. And I think one way I look at that is that they're exercising their courage. They're practicing that act of confronting something that looks like danger Mm. so that when real danger shows up, they understand what it feels like. So courage is like a muscle. You have to exercise it. Courage is also like a virus. It's contagious. Be in places where you can catch it from others. Be around the kind of people from whom you can catch courage. You and I have talked before about battlefield courage, about how many times on the battlefield, only a handful of men in a unit will actually take the first aggressive action and then everyone else will follow them. Battlefield courage is a mysterious thing, but uh, all the reading I've done about that suggests that it is also contagious. It's an atmosphere. And the more you breathe of that atmosphere, the more it kind of infuses you and the more Mm. it um, kind of fills you up. Look, true courage, true courage, in my opinion, requires true religion. You have to get religion. Now, what do I mean by get religion? What I specifically mean is when when I say religion in this context, I mean a set of immovable moral axioms that have a defined relationship to each other. A true religion is a hierarchy of loves, a hierarchy of values. One may love a great many things. One may value a great many things. But the courage to defend something that you love requires that that love occupy a fixed place so that you can't simply shuffle around the things you love when danger shows up. You can't simply hold one of your loves up as a shield and and give that up to the enemy because, well, you know, you you love a lot of things. You might love pistachio ice cream and you might love freedom. All right. And you might love your parents and and you might love your your girlfriend or your fiance or your wife. But those things have have to have some kind of relationship with each other. Some have to be more important than others. And only with that, with those two things, with with a set of values, a set of loves and a defined hierarchy, is there enough of a structure for you to defend in the first place? Well, even asking yourself the question about religion takes some courage. I do agree. Courage is like a muscle and the exercises, as as you put forth, are a constant confrontation challenge putting yourself uh, in adverse situations prayer and even facing the fear of, of rejection that takes courage it you know it takes bravery and then that's rewarded by a growing of the personality in a positive direction yes. and as you say a great symptom of this is that it rubs off on people people react to people acting bravely that's correct but having said that there could be interferences. So let me ask you question number four. What are the things to be mindful of that may interfere with acting bravely? Oh, now, this one is easy. There's only one, and that's you. Why? Because the things that demand courage of us are sometimes external and sometimes internal. You know, you, there's, a, there's a threat, a person with a weapon, uh, an impending natural disaster, and sometimes the things that demand courage are internal, right? You have to confront some some aspect of yourself, some some defect in your character, something in your past, what have you. But the things that interfere with courage, the things that might short circuit 
your exercise of that virtue, your ability to not let the passion of that fear control you. Well, those things are all internal. Danger and fear don't interfere with courage. Fear is a necessary component of courage. So it's only the things in you that can prevent you from both feeling fear and surrendering Mm. to fear. By definition, anything that interferes with the mental discipline of controlling one's fear, by definition, that has to come from inside you. The animal that's trying to eat you, (laughs) the enemy holding a weapon, that's the threat. But the way that you process that threat is all internal and therefore the flaws in your internal method of dealing with that threat are likewise all internal. There are many processes happening inside one all the time that might cause you to get your values out of order. It is tempting to get your loves, to get your values out of order. Again, to shuffle them around in a way that is more convenient to you. The world may impose many inconveniences on you and you can get around some of them by shuffling your values like a deck of cards. You say, okay, let's put that one at the bottom. And sometimes I would say that is even necessary. There is a virtuous way in which one can say, okay, this is not that important right now. But at the end of the day, you've still got to get religion. You still got to have some set of fixed points, fixed moral points. And in some defined hierarchy. So I've said a lot about that. Maybe I should give an example or two. Love is a discipline. So we should treat it as such and not as a passion. If you mistake love and passion for each other, that is something that can interfere with courage, that can interfere with acting bravely. Why? Because passions pass. You could almost say they're designed that way for a reason. But promises are meant to be kept. Disciplines are meant to be kept. So if I say I love you, then that means that doesn't just mean I feel a certain way. Because, of course, if I just if if I say I love my wife and that means I just feel a certain way about her, well, then that feeling can pass. And it's 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 like the weather it comes and goes. No problem. But if I say I love my wife and that means I swear to God that I will be thus and so and and I will do thus and so for you and I'll I'll be in your corner and so on and so forth. I make that extravagant promise. Now that's a discipline. I swear to put your well-being before mine no matter what. That's different. That's not a feeling. That's an order. And in and adopting that kind of internal order, we kind of gain an almost godlike power to impose order on the world, which is why, by the way, the family is the fundamental ordering principle of society. It is is based on this kind of, you know, religious singularity, this kind of point of almost infinite discipline. I will love you no matter what. I will do my duty by you no matter what. And all the rest of the order that we value and cherish in society comes from that. Hmm. Well, I'm not going to even bother summing up my thoughts on that answer, because the first 
word that you said in response when I asked what are the things to be mindful of that may interfere with acting bravely. You said you, and that's all the message <laughs> that I needed to hear. Yeah. Now, we've spoken about acting bravely being an absolute necessity. We've spoken about yourself holding you account for cowardice should you not act bravely. We've spoken about acting bravely, growing the personality. And then you've just told us that you are the only thing that stops you from acting bravely. So last question, what are the potential results if we do not do this, if we do not act bravely? This is also an easy one. What are the potential results of you not acting bravely? You become a slave. That's it. And that's always the result of abandoning virtue. Always. Because if virtue is the governance of one's passions, then if you abandon virtue and you give yourself up to your passions, then the first actor that can manipulate your passions gains almost complete power over you. They can make you do anything. Now, we're talking specifically about the passion of fear because, you know, courage and fear, this is, that's the kind of pairing. The same thing applies to other passions as well. I won't dig into that, but th that would seem to be obviously true. Uh, by the way, in the same way that courage is like a muscle and you get better at it through repetition, it's also the case that if you get into the habit of giving into your passions, of simply indulging your passions rather than disciplining them, you also get good at that. And what's even worse, you get good at telling yourself fancy stories about why that was the right thing to do. This is, again, why you have to get religion, because we are always challenged. You know, the, the world is always challenging us and challenging our virtues. Passions come and they go, they pass, right? And, and we, th there are a million occasions that arise all the time for us to grapple with our passions. And we're not always going to be successful, obviously. Sometimes your virtue fails you. If you have a fixed set of values, a, a hierarchy of loves, then when your virtue does fail, you have the self-respect to understand that your virtue failed. And you have the self-respect to be ashamed of yourself. And then you can work harder next time. You can say, okay, I'm gonna, that, that was no good. I'm going to have to try again. You understand that you've missed the mark. So this is, this is why you need to get religion. <laughs> All right. This is why you can't really be courageous unless you do. Mere self-expression, which is very much in vogue today in our society, in, in our culture, well, in, in both our countries, right? Uh, mere self-expression is not much better than self-indulgence. And conversely, as I said before, courage gives us an almost godlike power over the world. I would like to read an excerpt from an essay. Years and years ago, when I was a boy, there was an Air Florida flight, I believe it was Flight 90, that crashed while it was taking off from D.C. Hit a bridge, went into the water. This was in the wintertime, so literally there was ice in the Potomac. And um, most of the passengers died. There were six people in the water, I believe. Rescue chopper shows up, 
before too long. And the pilots are going, trying to get the people into you know, kind of dipping their skids in the water, you know, very dangerous maneuvers to try to get these people out of the water. There was one guy in the water. There was one man who every time the rescue chopper would, would, would send the life preserver down for him to grab, he would pass it to someone else. Uh, later we found out his name was Arland Williams Jr. And um, so every time, you know, they pass the, uh, they'd lower the life preserver down, he'd pass it to someone else. Lower it down again, he'd pass it to someone else. And when they finally went back to get him, he'd already gone under. And this is an essay that Roger Rosenblatt wrote, part of an essay that he wrote about, about this guy. Yet there was something else about the man that kept our thoughts on him and which keeps our thoughts on him still. He was there in the essential classic circumstance, man in nature, the man in the water. For its part, nature cared nothing about the five passengers. Our man, on the other hand, cared totally. So the timeless battle commenced in the Potomac. For as long as that man could last, they went at each other, nature and man, the one making no distinctions of good and evil, acting on no principles, offering no lifelines, the other acting wholly on distinctions, principles, and, one supposes, on faith. Since it was he who lost the fight, we ought to come again to the conclusion that people are powerless in the world. In reality, we believe the reverse, and it takes the act of the man in the water to remind us, <clears throat> excuse me, and it takes the act of the man in the water to remind us of our true feelings in this matter. It is not to say that everyone would have acted as he did, or as Usher, Windsor, and Skutnik. Those are the rescue personnel. Yet, whatever moved these men to challenge death on behalf of their fellows is not peculiar to them. Everyone feels the possibility in himself. That is the abiding wonder of the story. That is why we would not let go of it. If the man in the water gave a lifeline to the people gasping for survival, he was likewise giving a lifeline to those who observed him. The odd thing is that we do not even really believe that the man in the water lost his fight. Everything in nature contains all the powers of nature, said Emerson. Exactly. So the man in the water had his own natural powers. He could not make ice storms or freeze the water until it froze the blood. But he could hand life. But he could hand life over to a stranger. And that is a power of nature, too. The man in the water pitted himself against an implacable personal enemy. He fought it with charity, and he held it to a standoff. He was the best we can do. That just folds me up, man. <sighs> Fucking up. Again, I feel lacking in my in my powers of summation here, as I feel completely pulled down to planet Earth by this easy realization and reminder that should I not act bravely should I choose cowardice 
to not speak out when I should, you know, to, to not protect when I should, to tell lies, to go along with malevolence in a fucking vain hope that I'll get left alone and, and passed over by those who wish ill on the world. Correct. If I can't be as a tenth as strong as the man you just described, you know, I'd be very wrong to go down that road. Bravery, to my mind, is the most moving and heartrending phenomenon in the world, yes. and it can be replicated by us all. That's right. And all the time, you know, not always on the same scale, but but all the time. That's right. That's right. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much for joining me, mate, again on this, the Infinite Jigsaw podcast. That is the fifth piece of the foundationist puzzle explained and put into place where can we find more about foundationism online please remind us again you can go to www.futurad.io thank you next week mike and i will come together again to explore the sixth precept of foundationism and that is deny the self carbon mike until next week thank you again Thank you. Cheers, mate. Tura.